You're listening to The Recess Course, and today we're going to be talking about beta blocker and calcium channel blocker toxicities. These are some of the sickest patients that you're ever going to see, and there's a few things in terms of management that you need to be aware of, and we're lucky to have back on the show Dr. Lori Beatty. Lori is a poison center consultant at the Atlantic Canadian Poison Center, assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine. She also does hyperbarics and pre-hospital care. Lori, thanks for being back on the show. Oh, thanks, James. It's fun. All right. So we're going to go through a case. And as always, it's going to be a really sick patient. And then we're going to go through some of the management pearls. So this one you have is a 45-year-old guy. He's brought to the eMERGE by EMS. He's found altered in his bedroom by his wife with an empty bottle of propranolol. On arrival to the eMERGE, his GCS is 12, which is an E3 V4 M5. His heart rate's 40, his blood pressure's 80 on 30, his SATs are 92% on 2 liters, and his skin is ice cold. So just in hearing that case, what are your immediate thoughts about this patient? Yeah, obviously I'm really worried about this patient. Um, Any cardiac medications, beta blockers and calcium channel blockers can make patients really sick. And then this guy's had the bad luck of being on propranolol, which um, not only has all the cardiac effects we think of, but can have CNS effects like seizure as well and some sodium channel blocking effects. And so he's taken like the biggest, baddest beta blocker he could choose. My second thought, I guess, is that at least he didn't say amlodipine, which is probably the cardi- the one cardiac drug that I hate hearing about more than propranolol when I'm on call for poison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, would this be a typical presentation for a beta blocker, calcium channel blocker overdose? I guess specifically, um, some of the things I want to get into are, like you mentioned, there's different receptor effects for all of these different drugs. So um, with calcium channel blockers, there's sort of cardio selective versus like you mentioned, amylodipine being more peripheral. And similarly with beta blockers, in terms of how much myocardial effect they have, does, does that receptor selectivity matter in the context of overdoses and, and sort of how does that present itself clinically in the context of severe overdose? Yeah, great question, James. So there beta blockers and calcium channel blockers work a little bit differently. They each have some nuance, but for the most part, from a toxicologic point of view, we can like lump, lump them together and think about them in the same way. Both of them tend to have a really fast onset. Like these patients will develop symptoms between 30 minutes and two hours to the point that if someone is six hours out and completely asymptomatic, then then they're probably safe to go and we don't need to worry about an ingestion. So these patients often come in looking sick already. And that bradycardia and hypotension to varying degrees are quite characteristic. Both medications tend to cause depressed level of consciousness as well. Beta blockers tend to have a little bit more respiratory depression. And sometimes with calcium channel blockers, you'll see hyperglycemia because the calcium channel blockade happens in the pancreas as well and blocks insulin secretion. The selectivity that you mentioned doesn't seem to be as much of a factor in overdose. We know there's cardioselective beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, but in overdose, that selectivity tends to go away and all of the medications tend to act more or less the same. Mm, so you get both uh, myocardial suppression as well as some some vasodilation, presumably, especially with the, like, for example, amlodipine uh, or any of the other calcium channel blockers, you're going to get some vasodilation, but also myocardial suppression, regardless of whether or not it's selective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What about, um, so let's say this patient comes in, are you going to do anything in terms of decontamination? So, you know, charcoal, gastric lavage, those kinds of treatments. 
Yeah, probably not. Gastric lavage, is, we don't tend to recommend it anymore because it has some risk. It needs some sort of experience to do properly. It needs special equipment that most centers don't have readily, ready access to. Charcoal would be great if we can get it in early, like within the first hour or two. The problem is that often by the time these patients present, their level of consciousness is declining. Um, and we absolutely don't want to go to char- give charcoal to anyone who's at risk of vomiting and aspirating or that we don't feel really good about their ability to protect their airway because pulmonary aspiration of charcoal is going to put this patient in a whole new world of problems. And so um, my experience is oftentimes by the patient time these patients arrive, their level of consciousness is not such that they can tolerate charcoal. Now, that being said, if these patients are symptomatic and have a depressed level of consciousness already, their predicted course is one of a like prolonged period of being fairly sick. This isn't a medication that we have an antidote that we can reverse quickly. And so working in a big tertiary care center with lots of resources, I tend to have a fairly low threshold to move towards intubating these patients because I know that they're going to be sick for a while. And once intubated, then we can safely put down an NG tube, give them charcoal, uh, and then think about whole bowel irrigation as well if the ingestion has been massive in order to try and get some of the drug out of their system before it's absorbed. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and I mean, early intubation in these patients before they get significantly hemodynamically deranged is probably a benefit to them as well, right? Like you're intubating them before they have significant physiologically difficult airways in terms of hypotension. So if you're if you can predict that eventually this patient, I mean, he's already hemodynamically deranged, but if they come in, they've taken a significant overdose, they're a bit altered, and they have a bit of a soft pressure, you know, it might even be, you know, so long as you get all the treatments for their blood pressure started, you know, earlier might be better for that kind of patient too. Would you agree? I would, yeah. James, no, I come from the privilege of working in a well-resourced center um, and have lots of airway experience. If I was a physician in a, a center that didn't have support for, you know, doesn't say have a ventilator or IC level care, um, then I may not move to very early intubation. But for my practice and, and where I tend to work, I tend to err on the side of early intubation for exactly the reasons you've described. And it allows us to get that GI contamination on the go. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So what kind of investigations? So the patient's in your eMERGE now and, you know, you're getting everything ready to manage the patient and the nurses are drawing off some blood work. What kind of investigations do you want to get for this patient? Yeah, so this is a toxicology patient, so we're going to send our usual toxicology blood work. And so for me, that's going to include a a glucose and electrolytes. I'd like to get an idea of his baseline renal function. We're going to get an aspirin, Tylenol, and ethanol level looking for co-ingestions, serum osmolality, and the ability to calculate an anion gap, an osmol gap a venous gas. We're going to do our careful toxicology uh, physical exam. Um, and then obviously an ECG, which is going to give us an idea about why this, this patient's heart rate is 40. Does he have a block? And, and what are the uh, PR and QRS and QT intervals? Yeah. Yeah. In terms of that blood pressure, so he's come in with a blood pressure of 80 on 30, so obviously very low. How would you manage this patient's blood pressure, sort of knowing that propanolol uh, beta blocker overdose is the is the primary dis, you know cause of that disturbance. Yep. So we can start with the things that we would usually do for any hypotensive patient, which is going to be IV fluid bolus and starting vasopressors. Most of the time in toxicology, I think norepi is our vasopressor of choice, and so you can start that and titrate the dose you would, the way you would with any other hypotensive patient, knowing that because this patient is taking a medication that blocks beta receptors. 
we're not going to have the same ceiling dose for norepinephrine as we would in, say, a septic patient. And so typically most of us will stop at um, a mic per kilo uh, per minute. This patient, we can go higher than that. We can push it up to two or three or four if we need to. Um, the other thing that's going to be really important in this patient uh, is going to be high-dose insulin with glucose. And so we're going to use that insulin sort of as an inotropin to support their cardiac output and their blood pressure. And so we're going to start them on an insulin infusion of a unit per kilo per hour, which is going to be a high number and which is usually going to get a squinty look from any uh, <laughs> nurses or physicians who aren't used to taking care of, of patients with these ingestions. And goal blood pressure there, you're targeting a MAP of 65, similarly to, to most of our shocky patients. Is that fair? Yeah, I think manage this with the same goals as any shock. You want them to have reasonable urine output. You want them to be reasonably well perfused. You want them to not have a climbing lactate or a dropping pH in a map of 60 or 65. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. That first bit is that, uh, you know, we're targeting a goal map of 65. But I think more importantly, like you said, is, is you know, how are their end organs doing? So are they peeing? Sort of good signs of perfusion. Tell me a little bit more about high dose insulin. So um, you mentioned you'd started at a, a unit per per kilo. How does it work, and uh, and how are you going to be titrating that medication? Yeah, good question. So we think the way insulin works um, is that when your heart is sick or poisoned from these cardiac medications, it tends to prefer glucose as a substrate, and so the insulin first of all helps the glucose get into the cardiac muscle, which gives it the energy it needs to function. That's particularly important in calcium channel blockers where insulin release is blocked from the, the pancreas by the calcium channel blocking mechanism. Insulin also works as a direct inotrope. And James, you probably know more than me, the, the pathophysiology of how that works. But insulin is a, is a direct inotrope in addition to getting increased glucose into the heart. Yeah, it's an interesting drug, isn't it? One thing I always talk about when I'm managing these is that high dose insulin is a, I, I akin it almost to like dibutamine without any really good chronotropy. So it's actually an iododilator. And that's one thing that we sometimes forget about high dose insulin is that you're going to get some vasodilation from it. So, and you're not going to get much in terms of increased heart rate. So you'll get good ionotropy from it, but it'll also vasodilate. So um, you know, as you alluded to, we're going to be starting norepinephrine on these patients. And in, and in my mind, the best sort of combination in terms of supporting the systemic vascular resistance, but also supporting the function of the heart in these patients is sort of high dose insulin plus norepinephrine, because you're going to get that inotropic effect from the insulin. And then you're offsetting that vasodilation that you get from the insulin using your, your norepinephrine. Yeah, agreed. And I think you said something really important there, James, is that although insulin helps these patients, it's not an antidote per se that like turns off the beta blocker calcium channel blocker. And so what you said about it not increasing the heart rate is important because I've seen people make that error sometimes in that they have a reasonable blood pressure, but they're titrating the insulin trying to improve the bradycardia. And you're not going to see the bradycardia change much. But a bradycardic patient with a rate of 40 who has a reasonable blood pressure and reasonable cardiac output, we're happy to sit with that bradycardic rate as long as they're well perfused otherwise. So I'm, I'm glad yeah. you that out, that you won't see their heart rate necessarily change. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in terms of the hypoglycemia, you alluded to this a little bit is, you know, and we have trouble with this sometimes at the poison center is that people are a little bit worried about inducing significant hypoglycemia with really high doses of insulin. And... That certainly is, you know, that's certainly something that needs to be managed. But what I'm interested in is just sort of logistically, 
Um, how do you how do you manage that in terms of you know how much glucose you're giving up front versus are you doing an infusion of glucose? Those kinds of things. What are your thoughts there? I think in people who are worried, there's no harm to giving a dose of glucose up front. And so in people who are uncomfortable or in any patients really, giving them an amp of D50 to start off when you start that infusion is going to give you a little buffer and, and give you some more wiggle room, make you feel more comfortable. You can bolus with D50, but I find it it's often easier in these patients to run an infusion of D10 in the background. So just D10 or D10 half normal saline. And frustratingly, there's not a great algorithm for calculating the amount the patient's going to need. It's going to vary significantly based on their comorbidities and what what ingestion they've taken and how much insulin they're on. But a reasonable starting point for me uh, is to run the D10 at, say, 75 cc's an hour, and then have your nursing staff titrate that up or down as needed to target a, a reasonable glucose. And we want the yeah. glucose certainly on the higher end of normal in these patients, because as we talked about, part of the reason insulin works is it's helping get glucose into the heart. So targeting a, a glucose kind of between six and 10 or 16 and 14, six and 14 would be reasonable. Nice. Nice. Propranolol has uh, the extra effect of sodium channel blockade, which you alluded to earlier on. Um, is there a way to check for this in these patients? Is it a is it a level of consciousness thing? Is uh, ECG based? And then how do you how do you treat that additional sodium channel blockade effect? Yeah, it does two things, doesn't it? First, it crosses the blood brain barrier, so it brings its sodium channel effects into your brain to cause altered level consciousness and seizure. It's also going to affect sodium channels in the heart to cause the wide QRS. And to see whether that sodium channel blocking is significant, we can use that AVR lead or the tox lead on your ECG. Um, if you've got a big prominent R wave or the last half of your QRS complex in AVR is more above the baseline than below the baseline, that's a good hint that there's a sodium channel blocker on board. Um, the other thing I tend to look for in these patients is a wide QRS. And so if I do see a QRS greater than 100, it makes me think that propranolol is blocking sodium channels. And if it's doing it in the heart, it could be doing it in the brain, and I don't want the patient to seize. And so those patients I would treat with a bolus of sodium bicarb, just the way you would treat tricyclic antidepressant overdose. We always talk about dialysis in toxicology and there's some things some ingestions or some toxicities that you can use dialysis to sort of help treat what about these overdoses is there any role for dialysis in in this patient and and if not this patient then any other beta blocker calcium channel blockers that you think about yeah i wish there was most of the um Beta blocker and calcium channel blockers have a really big volume of distribution, which basically means it goes into your fat cells and there's not much of it in your serum for the machine to pull off. There are a few beta blockers that can be dialyzed. I think the relevant ones to us are atenolol, natalol, and sodalol. Those are the ones that kind of we see patients on, but those ones aren't common. And so for the most part, mm -hmm. no dialysis isn't going to help us with these patients. And we just need to sort of support them clinically while they metabolize the medication. In terms of that supportive care, like let's say you're doing, you know, all the right stuff, they're on norepinephrine, high dose insulin, and that's been titrating up. Uh, but unfortunately they, they continue to deteriorate and, and their cardiac output uh, and their blood pressure is, is still quite low. Any other treatments that you can um, initiate or any other treatments for these patients that you'd consider? 
Yeah, there are other ones that we kind of consider adjuncts. So one would be calcium, either calcium gluconate or calcium chloride, if you have central uh, venous access. And you can give that a gram at a time, sort of over 10 minutes, looking for response. If there's good response, you can repeat dosing or consider um, consider regular calcium dosing. If you've given a couple grams of calcium and haven't really noticed a change in the blood pressure improvement in the patient status, then there's not much point in continuing. The other medication um, that we use in the setting of beta blockers sometimes is glucagon. It's given in really big doses, five milligram bolus. And as we know for those of us who've been around long enough to use glucagon for food boluses, this medication is really, really good at making patients vomit. Um, <laughs> it, it doesn't tend to help a whole lot otherwise. So in my really sick patient who I'm not winning, I'm going to add in the glucagon and the calcium. And if they're effective, I'll continue them with repeat boluses or an infusion. But in my patient who I've maxed out on insulin and, and vasopressors, I'm not really optimistic that those adjuncts are going to be helpful. They're worth trying, but they're probably not worth hanging your hat on. Yeah, fair enough. I guess the other thing, and we've talked about this before uh, together, is um, you know when people are failing a treatment for either calcium channel blocker, beta blocker overdose, the thing that I always want to know is you know what is the primary disturbance here? What you know what are we seeing? Is it primarily a heart problem at the moment, or is it primarily vasoplegia? Um, and oftentimes it's you know obviously going to be a little bit of both. But there's ways to sort of try to help figure that out. So whether or not that's the, the classical ways of, of determining, you know, how good that patient's cardiac output is in terms of end organ perfusion, skin temperature, or probably, you know, in this day and age, it's you know taking a look at the heart and with ultrasound and seeing, you know, what is that uh, myocardial function? And is there anything else that I should be doing? Or should I be tailoring my treatments differently um, because it is more so the heart versus vasoplegia, or maybe the heart looks great. And really what we're dealing with here is vasoplegia. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think if you want to be really savvy with the management of these patients and you have some bedside echo skills, then that can be a huge benefit for these patients. And so just kind of looking globally at the cardiac output, patient, particularly with a vasoplegic medication like amlodipine on board, should actually have a hyperdynamic heart, right? They're, 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 um, peripherally quite vasodilated. And so the heart should be beating like mad trying to compensate for that. And so if it is, if their heart looks really, really great, but their pressure's low, then maybe you want to go up on your vasopressors. And as we said, we don't have that kind of ceiling dose that we would in say a septic patient. So you can push your norepigos mm-hmm. pretty high and think about adding something like vasopressin. If you look at their cardiac output and it it's not great, or even if it looks kind of normal, normal looking cardiac output in the setting of a big amlodipine or, or calcium channel blocker overdose, is abnormal. And so that's when I might think, wow, this heart wants more insulin. Or if the patient is on a lot of insulin, when I say a lot, at the poison center, we tend to recommend going up to 10 units per kilo per hour. Then we might think about adding in a second inotrope, something like the dobutamine that you mentioned earlier, to try and give the patient some improved cardiac output. Yeah, or even sort of milrinone or something like that as well. Um, I guess uh, yeah, I'm a bit biased because um, I'm, a, I'm a lover of ECMO, but the other thing I guess we, we'd consider in these patients, especially if we decided that the heart was the problem and they're failing everything else would be if, if you're in a center that's capable of this, um, you know, VA ECMO uh, for myocardial support versus, I mean, I think, again, and it's important to recognize is, you know, ECMO is on the list of treatments for these patients, but um, if the heart's not the problem, then ECMO is not the solution. So, you know, having a good sense of the primary disturbance that you're dealing with, if the heart is, like you say, functioning relatively well or pretty well, and, and you know, the, what you're seeing is, is vasoplegia, 
um, the NECMA is not going to do much in that scenario. And it's just about titrating your pressers up, adding on vasopressin, as you said. I love the idea of ECMO. And I think in the ASA talk, we, we discussed moving really sick patients to a dialysis capable center earlier rather than later. I feel that way about these patients as well. When I hear on poison call about a patient with propranolol or amlodipine overdose, my first question is, where are they? And are they in an ECMO capable center? And if not, um, really encouraging the physician taking care of that patient to move them to or toward an ECMO capable center, anticipating that this patient may deteriorate over the coming six or 12 or 24 hours. And that ECMO is absolutely a life-saving treatment for these patients. The beta blocker and calcium channel blocker are reversible. They don't cause irreversible damage outside of the hypoperfusion that causes organ injury. And so if we can get them on ECMO before they've hypoperfused and killed their other organs, they can have a complete recovery. The other thing you can think about is intralipid, right? I know there's not great mm. evidence for intralipid like anything in toxicology, but it has been used more so with calcium channel blockers and beta blockers. There are at least case reports in success with intralipid. And I think, again, you'd pull it out in that scenario where you feel like you've really maxed out the treatments you're, you have access to give that patient and they continue to deteriorate. Then maybe um, giving intralipid in consultation with the poison center is the right answer. Yeah, yeah, well said. Awesome. Any final words of of talks wisdom you want to impart on the listeners? Yeah, the only one I would add for this one, James, is not being timid of that insulin dose. Like yeah. 10, 10 units per kilo per hour for me is going to be a dose of like more than 600 units an hour of insulin, right? Which people just don't believe is real, but it is real and it helps patients. So that would be my biggest pearl for these patients is, is um, don't be timid of the insulin. Give the insulin. We can always give more sugar. That's an easy treatment, but don't be intimidated by cranking up the insulin dose if it's helping the patient. Amazing. Yeah. Well said. Great pearls. All right, Lori, thanks so much for being on the show and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, James. It was fun.